see if you can finish the lyrics to this song, okay? And I'll cue you when you're supposed to fill in the lyrics, okay? Sleep with one eye open, gripping your pillow tight. Exit light, enter night, take my hand, off to never, never, Amen. you pagans. Who wrote the song? And what's the name of the song? Enter Sandman. And as many of you evidently know, the, that song is really, it's really a song about fear, the fear of the dark. And, and that's something we can all relate to, right? I mean, who here hasn't at one point in their life been afraid of the dark? I know I have. But, but interact with me. What are some other things we can be afraid of? What would you say? What are some other things we can be afraid of? Clowns, yes, it's very true. Uh, we can be afraid of change, yes. Getting sick. Someone said, did someone say heights? Heights. L losing loved ones, yes. Government, right, yes. S snakes, failure. Amen to the snakes. I, have a, I think we have a biblical reason why we can hate snakes and be afraid of Fear of the unknown, fire, red eyes, <laughs> maybe associated with a the clown there, huh? What are some, what are some of the things we can be afraid of? Camping? <laughs> well, I think, I think we have some counseling sessions. So I don't know if you know. <laughs> Public speaking? Public speaking, yes. Drowning, yes. Roosters, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> the, the, those, are, those are all legitimate answers. Those are all terrifying things. But, but, but you know what's kind of odd to me? When I asked, what are some things that we can be afraid of? You know what no one said? God. I'm going to make an assumption that I think is fair, and that is everyone here wants to connect with God in some kind of meaningful way. Otherwise, why would you, why would you even come to church, right? All of us want to connect with God in some meaningful way. Well, let me ask, do you really want that, though? Do you really want to come close to the one true and living God? Uh, two years ago, Aaron Parker of Brisbane, Australia, he stopped by his mom's house for a family meal. Aaron was going to his mom's backyard to use her fire pit to cook some delicious barbecue. However, he had a really hard time keeping the fire going. So you know what he did? He poured gasoline on the fire. Kids and adults never do this. Because you know what happened? As he started to pour the gasoline before the gasoline even hit the fire, the fire reached out and consumed it. The fire reached out, and like a wick on a candle, the flame shot up from the bottom of the fire pit all the way to the plastic gasoline container he was holding in his hand. 
It, it, liter it literally looked like a string of fire. Friends, the Bible teaches that all of us, myself included, we are sinners by nature and by choice. This is to say, sin just isn't something we do. It's something we're soaked in. Think of it like this. In our natural state, all of us are like a rag doll that has been soaked in gasoline. And you know what God is? The author of Hebrews says it best. Our God is a consuming fire. So do you see the problem? You see, most people mistakenly believe that their standing before God is based on a weight scale. They think if their good deeds outweigh their bad deeds, then they'll be accepted by God. But that's not the biblical image. No, the Bible teaches that we just don't commit sin. No, we're actually soaked in the gasoline of sin, and God is a consuming fire. So here's the question I want us to consider this morning. If God is a consuming fire, and we are soaked as sinners by nature and by choice, and we're soaked in the gasoline of sin, here's the question. How is it even possible for us to have any kind of relationship or fellowship with this holy God, a God who's so holy that sin is burned up in his presence. It's a really important question, isn't it? I mean, you're here this morning, are you not? Because you either want to have a relationship with God or you want to strengthen or deepen your relationship with God. Indeed, none of us want to be consumed by God. So how can we have fellowship with him and not be consumed by him in judgment? Well, turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 5. For this is the very question that our text this morning not only raises but also answers. If you need a Bible, we got those in the seat in front of you. That's page 258. For the past several months, we've been working our way through the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel. And last week, we looked at the first half of 2 Samuel chapter 5, which recorded David being installed as king over all of Israel. And while all of Israel was rejoicing over David's installment as king over all the tribes of Israel, the Philistines, Israel's enemy, they were preparing for war. You see, the Philistines wanted to crush the kingdom, this unified kingdom, David's kingdom, in its infancy. So as we're about to see our text this morning, it begins with warfare. And it's here on the battlefield that we begin to learn the answer to our question, and that is how can sinners, we who are soaked in the gasoline of sin, have any kind of relationship with a God who is a consuming fire? Well, follow along with me in your copy of God's Word as I begin reading in 2 Samuel chapter 5. Verse 17, we read this. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. 
But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines in your hand. Now notice, the Philistine army, they're spread out in the valley of Rephaim. Elsewhere in the Bible, we learn that Rapha was a giant, and 2 Samuel 21 tells us that the Rephaim are his descendants. So notice what's taking place here. David is fighting the Philistines in the valley of giants. And here's the question, will David once again be a giant killer like he was when he defeated Goliath? So the stage is set. David's installed as king. The Philistines are set up in the valley of the giants, and a battle ensues. Let's see what happens and if David is victorious. Verse 20. And David came to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal Perizim. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. David, once again, is victorious. He is a giant killer. Yet notice, the emphasis for this victory falls on who? Does it fall on David? On the Lord. Indeed, who does David give credit for in the victory there in verse 20? He says, the Lord. He says, notice, the Lord is the one who broke through David's enemies like a flood. Indeed, this, this victory was so dominant that the Philistines left their idols. These are the, the gods they worshiped and looked to to provide victory in battle. Now, let me ask you this, okay? I mean, by God's strength, the Philistines just got routed. If you just suffered such a devastating defeat, what would you do next? You know what the Philistines did? They decided to attack them again. <laughs> Look at what happens in the following verses, 22 through 25. And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, you shall not go up, go around to the rear and come against them opposite of the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself. For then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded, and he struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. Do, do, you, guys, do you guys remember the Wile E. Coyote cartoons, right? Remember those? Okay. Well, you know how he kept failing to try to catch the roadrunner? Well, well, the Philistines' repeated failure, it, it almost has a cartoonish quality to it, doesn't it? Yet notice again who has brought about the victory, and that is the Lord. Notice the Lord tells David to wait until he hears the marching in the tops of the trees. You know what the implication is? That's the sound of the hosts of the Lord's army. Now tell me, after any sports team wins a championship, what typically takes place in the city of that home team? A parade, right? A victory parade. Well, notice that's exactly what happens next. Look at chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. So, so they just defeat the Philistines twice in a crushing way all thanks to the Lord. 
So he gathers the men together, and they're going to have a parade. And notice what's in the parade, verse 2. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Valley Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. So we have a parade, and what's the central feature to this parade? What item? The Ark of the Covenant. Now, I don't know about you, but as a child of the 80s, I cannot read the Ark of the Covenant without thinking about the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark. Anyone else? If so, that's not a bad thing, okay? <laughs> and let me tell you why. Do you remember, what was, the, what was one of the main reasons why the Nazis wanted to get and have possession of the Ark? Do you remember? Power. They believe it had power, right? Divine power. Well, as this text makes clear, what makes the Ark of the Covenant so incredibly important is that it is the very dwelling place of God himself. Notice what we see there at the end of verse 2. The cherubim was, was on top of the Ark, and it says this is the place where God is enthroned. As we learned back in 1 Samuel chapter 4, the ark was the focal point of God's actual presence among his people. This is going to be really important if we're going to understand what happens next. As one commentator has succinctly put it, the ark of the covenant represents three things. The rulership of the Lord, the reconciliation of the Lord, and then the revelation of the Lord, because in the Ark of the Covenant are the Ten Commandments. So after defeating the Philistines, Dave has a victory parade. Like parades, we're going to see there's going to be singing and dancing and shouts of joy. Lots of good times. Yet in this parade, something goes terribly wrong. Notice what we read in the following verses 3 through 7. We read this. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. I mean, can you picture it? This is a party and the music is pumping, okay? Tambourines, castanets, and cymbals, verse 6. And when they came to the threshing floor, floor of Nacon, Uzzah, put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. So do you, do you see the picture? They got the ark on a cart, ox are pulling it. Ahio's in front, Uzzah's by me, and they see all of a sudden the ark's going to fall to the ground, so what does Uzzah do? He puts his hand on it to stop it, and what does God do to Uzzah? Kills him right then and there. What kind of God is that? Doesn't this seem quite unjust as if the punishment does not equate to the crime? I mean, Uzzah was just trying to help things out, right? So what's the problem? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> because there are several. First, if we're reading our Bibles carefully, we know that God gave clear instructions on how the ark was to be transported. And you know how it was to be transported? Not by cart and ox. No, the ark was only to be carried on the shoulders of men using poles. You know why? So as to avoid this very scenario. 
And it's clear that the author wants us to remember this point, for notice how many times the author mentions the ark was on a new cart in verse 6, or verse 3, rather. Have your eyes fall there. Twice the author highlights how the ark was on a new cart. A clear violation of God's commands. But then second, God forbid anyone to touch the ark. This was made abundantly clear in Numbers 4.15. Yet here we see Uzzah touching the ark. And why did he do that? I think there's more going on here than we think. Listen to this insightful comment by R.C. Sproul. In his book, The Holiness of God, theologian R.C. Sproul writes this. He writes, Uzzah assumed that his hand was less polluted than the earth. But it wasn't the ground or the mud that would desecrate the ark. It was the touch of man. The earth is an obedient creature. It does what God tells it to do. The ground doesn't commit cosmic treason. There's nothing polluted about the ground. Yet, friend, as we have seen, man's touch is polluted. Why? Because as we've talked about, we are soaked in the gasoline of sin. So as you can imagine, with Uzzah dead, all the music, all the dancing stopped. It came to a screeching halt. Now notice David's response to what happened next there in verses 8 and 9. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. David is not angry at the Lord. This is important. He's angry about what had happened. The implication is anger could be even leveled at Uzzah. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Beraz Uzzah to this day. And David was what? What's that word? Afraid of who? The Lord. We began by asking, what are some things that we're afraid of? Here we have David, God's anointed king, and you know who he's afraid of? The Lord. And why is he afraid of the Lord? For notice what he says next. And David was afraid that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? David in this moment is aware of the truth that God is terrifying in his holiness and we are terrible in our sinfulness. Uzzah, acting in sin, was killed by a consuming fire God. So David is afraid. And so notice what he says there at the verse 9. He asks, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? This is to say, he's asking, how can God ever come to me? How can I ever experience his presence and have fellowship with God without being killed and consumed in judgment? So, so you see, here's the problem the text raises. And you need to know that David's question about how can sinful people have fellowship with a holy God, this question here, how can God's presence come to me, it's not an anomaly. This is actually a question we see throughout the pages of Scripture. Indeed, this was the same question that was asked of the men of Beth Shemesh in 1 Samuel 16. Remember what happened there. Some men of Beth Shemesh did what God forbade concerning, guess what? the ark. So in that chapter, I don't know if you remember, they did things they ought not to do to the ark, so you know what God did? He immediately killed 70 men. And the survivors, you know what they said? They said, quote, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? 
David at this point? He's not so sure. So he sends the ark away to the home of a Gentile for three months. Look at verses 10 and following. So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. And remember, the ark, it's, it's, it represents the presence of God. It's where God dwells, the focal point of him dwelling among his people. So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gideite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gideite, for three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, the Lord had blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because the ark of God, because of the ark of God. So David went and brought out the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. So David, he, he sends it away for three months. He hears it brings about blessing. So he decides to bring the ark back to the city. Yet this time, he does things differently. Not only does he transport the ark correctly, but he also does something else that's significant and that answers the question of how can we have fellowship with the holy God. So notice what we see in the following verses, beginning there in verse 13. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, indicating they're, they're bearing it, they're, it's not on an ox anymore, they're carrying it the right way, had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of a horn. And then the ark of the Lord came to the city of David. Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. So notice, at the beginning they make a sacrifice, they arrive, and then they make another sacrifice. Verse 18, And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. Amen and amen. This is God's word. In uh, 1986, Phil Collins' album, No Jacket Required, won a Grammy for being the album of the year. It featured several hits such as Take Me Home, Susu Studio, and Don't Lose My Number. Yet I don't know if you happen to know why he chose to give the album that name, No Jacket Required. And the album is named after an, in, an incident at the Pump Room restaurant in Chicago. You see, Collins was entering the restaurant, the restaurant, but he was denied admittance because he did not meet the restaurant's dress code of jacket required, while the person he was with was allowed in. Interestingly enough, Collins was wearing an actual jacket, a sport coat. However, the mayor D argued that his jacket, his jacket was not proper. So he was denied entrance into the restaurant while his friend was able to go in. And Phil Collins later said in an interview that he had never been so mad in his entire life. Right? But you know, if you think about it, restaurants and fancy restaurants, they're not the only places that require certain attire or some kind of credentials to gain admittance, right? We see this 
all around us, right? Certain sports venues, hospitals, various things, all around us, there are requirements, credentials for you to gain admittance. Yet surprisingly, many people think no such standard applies when gaining admittance into heaven or to have fellowship with God. However, the Bible in general, and this passage in particular, shatters such notions. For faith, you know what this text teaches? This narrative, I think, argues this very important point, and that is, fellowship with God requires a sacrifice. Fellowship with God requires a sacrifice. Friend, if you're going to have a relationship with God and not be consumed in judgment for your sin, you need a sacrifice. The answer to our question of how we can have fellowship with a holy God is right here. And notice how this text makes it abundantly clear. So at the end of chapter 6, David once again brings the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, and this time he succeeds. And what's the difference? Well, this time there's no mention of a cart, right? The people are actually carrying it the right way. But then there's another real significant difference, and you know what that is? It's a sacrifice. Notice, from verse 12 to verse 19, the journey of the ark is bookended by a sacrifice. Not only that, David is dressed in an ephod. And an ephod, you know what that is? It's a priestly garment. So do you see what's making the difference here? What makes the difference is a priest offering a sacrifice. Something dies en route. Now the first time with Uzzah, Uzzah dies. The second time, what dies are animals dying in the place of people. So the first journey of the ark that was unsuccessful starts with celebration, and then it ends in death and fear. The second starts with death, a sacrifice, and it ends in blessing. And please notice what we read there in verse 19. Because of the sacrifice, it's not just that David and Israel are not consumed by God. No, they also have fellowship with him. Notice they're eating a meal together in his presence. Look, in every culture, eating a meal with someone is a sign of friendship and community. And that's what we see happening here in verses 18 and 19. So I believe this narrative is, is pressing upon our hearts to this truth, this very important truth, and that is fellowship with God requires a sacrifice. Fellowship with God requires a sacrifice. And friend, this is precisely why you need Jesus. Friends, the author of Hebrews makes abundantly clear, you know who Jesus is? He is both the all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins and the great high priest we all need. The good news of the Bible, friend, is that on the cross, Jesus Christ was consumed by the wrath of God for all who would trust in him. Before his death, Jesus Christ lived the perfect sinless life we have failed to live. Then on the cross, he died as a sufficient sacrifice for our sins. Then three days later, he rose from the dead, defeating sin and death and proving himself to be who he claimed to be, the Son of God. And friend, here's the incredible offer of the Bible. It's this, that sinful people like you and me People who are soaked in the gasoline of sin, instead of being consumed by God's judgment as we are rightfully owed, the good news in the offer of the Bible is that we can be washed clean of our sin, 
have fellowship with God, the promise of eternal life, and the righteousness of Jesus simply by faith. Friend, have you put your faith in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins? Because one day you are going to come face to face with God. And if you're still in your sin-soaked state, you will be consumed by his judgment for all eternity. But you don't have to. In this very moment, in the hearing, as I'm saying these words, God's grace is coming to you with the opportunity to confess your sins, to repent, and to trust in Christ. Don't trust in your own righteousness. It doesn't work like a scale. You need to be washed clean, friend. And you need a righteousness of another, and that's what God offers you in Jesus Christ. Have you put your trust in Him? If not, I would plead with you, friend, let today be the day of salvation for you. And again, as we're, as we're fond of, of saying here at Faith, what I have just described, how is that in any way bad news? How is it bad news? You're a sin-soaked sinner deserving God's judgment, but God has made provision for you through Jesus Christ, and you can be cleaned and forgiven and made right simply by faith. Have you put your trust in him? And to make sure that we see the urgent need to trust in Jesus, this text highlights two reasons, two reasons I just want to briefly draw your attention to of why we need a sacrifice to have fellowship with God and why that sacrifice finds fulfillment in Jesus of Nazareth. And here's the first reason why. It's because God is dominant Fellowship with God requires a sacrifice. Why? Because God is dominant. Look again at verse 21 of chapter 5. This is after the Philistines are routed, they're defeated. This is what we see. And the Philistines left their idols there. The idols, the things they were trusting in, they were looking to. They left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. Who can tell me what very, very significant golf match is taking place today? The Ryder Cup. That's right. As of this very moment, Team USA has a commanding 11-5 to lead over the Europeans. Team USA just needs 3.5 more points to win the whole thing. And with such a commanding lead... You know what Steve Stricker, the captain of Team USA, said to his team? In light of such a commanding lead, he said to them, you know what, guys? Just go out and enjoy yourselves today. You think that's what he said? You think that's what he said? No, you know what he said? He said, don't let up. Put the pedal to the metal. He said, strive to crush them. Okay? And we're going to have to wait to see if that actually takes place this afternoon, if Team USA will exactly crush them. But while we might have to wait to see what Team USA does, in the passage I just read, we read of a crushing defeat, don't we? And notice what verse 21 states, after being routed, the Philistines abandoned their idols and David and his men carried them off. Now, as several commentators have pointed out, there's actually a really interesting wordplay taking place there in verse 21. In this, that in the, the Hebrew language, the word for abandoned sounds just like the Hebrew word for idol. So like I said, as several commentators have pointed out, verse 21, it's, it's actually a wordplay, a joke that highlights the impotent nature of idols. 
the Philistines were trusting in their idols to give them victory. They were trusting in their gods to have them be victorious over Israel. Yet the Philistine idols abandoned them, so they are forced to abandon their gods. Indeed, do you remember what happened at the end of the book of 1 Samuel after the Philistines defeated Israel and Saul was killed? Do you remember? In chapter 31, verse 9, the Philistines sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry, and the text uses this language, the good news that their idols were victorious. Saul's dead. Israel's defeated. Proclaim the good news. Our gods, our idols are victorious. Now those very same idols are scattered and shattered and left alone on the battlefield. And the point is pretty clear, isn't it? The point is, God and God alone is dominant. Amen? He is the one true and living God. The idols of this world are blind, deaf, dumb, and impotent. Which begs the question, friend, why would you seek consolation, comfort, and security from anything other than the one true and living God? Why would you put your hope and confidence in the things of this world rather than God? Why would you look to a romantic relationship for your sense of well-being and value? Why would you put your hope and confidence in money for your security? Why would you look to the things of this world this text is reminding us that God and God alone is dominant. So not only put your hope in Him, but remember that to have fellowship with Him, this dominant God, it requires a sacrifice that's seen supremely in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then second, this text highlights that God is dangerous. Look in chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. When it says, and the, this is after Uzzah touched the ark, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there besides the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. Uh, Dale Ralph Davis tells a story of two men who were making their way to a reception on a rainy Washington, D.C. evening. And the one offered to share his umbrella with the stranger who was on his way to the same affair. So they're walking along under the umbrella, and as they sloshed along and had conversation, the stranger declared his opinion of General Grant, namely, he thought that General Grant was highly overrated. Guess who was holding the umbrella? <laughs> Guess. General Grant. Now, naturally, that guy wouldn't have said that had he known General Grant was holding the umbrella over him. You see, he acted foolishly because he didn't know who he was dealing with. Sadly, I think we can tend to do the same in regards to God. That is, we can forget what sort of God we have. Namely, we can forget that there is heat to his holiness. And that's why we need texts like these. Notice the language that is used to describe the Lord's actions towards Uzzah there in verse 8. The text says that the Lord broke out against him. Now tell me, class, have we seen that phrase before, that the Lord broke out against someone? 
And the answer is yes, we have in chapter 5, the passage right before this that I read, when God defeated the Philistines. Look at verse 20 of chapter 5. Defeated them there, the second half, and the Lord had broken through my enemies like a breaking flood. It's the same language in both cases. The outbreak of God is enshrined in the name of that place. Balo Perizim and Perez Uzzah. But notice in chapter 6, verse 8, the Lord has broken out against his own people. This is why David is afraid of God. He has a healthy fear of our holy God. And you know what? So should we. So let's just drill down here for a moment. So what does that practically mean? What does it practically mean to have a a healthy fear of our holy God? Well, I think this text directs us towards several very practical applications. The first is this. Faith, and this is really important. I mean, it's all important, but this is really important, especially in today's climate. This episode with Uzzah reminds us that we are not only to trust God's message, but we are also to trust God's methods. We are not only to trust his message, but we're also to trust his methods. I have no doubt Uzzah thought he was doing something innovative, fresh, and really helpful by having the ark be transported on a cart with oxen rather than by men. Indeed, he probably thought that God's commands to carry the ark on poles, man, how antiquated, how outdated. That's not going to connect with the rest of the Israelites. Indeed, he probably even thought it was burdensome but it wasn't. Rather, it was God's divine method for handling the ark. Uzzah failed to trust God's methods. And I wonder, can we do the same? Can we fail to trust God's methods, say, when it comes to how a Christian wife should respond and interact with her unbelieving husband, namely by winning him over without a word by the purity and reverence of her behavior as 1 Peter 3 clearly instructs us? Or or how about our method or the method God has for how husbands and wives are to relate to one another in marriage? I wonder, can we, can we fail to trust his method, how a husband is to lead and to be the head of his household, and how the wife is to submit to her husband's leadership, as clearly spelled out in Ephesians 5? Or what about God's method to restore the wayward Christian through God's method of church discipline in 1 Corinthians 5? I wonder, can we ever think like Uzzah that we have more innovative ways and methods than those clearly prescribed in Scripture? If so, I believe this passage is calling to commit afresh not only to God's message, but also His methods. But do you know what else it means to have a healthy fear of God? It means you worship him with reference, with reverence. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says right before the verse that our God is a consuming fire. In fact, uh, in, in Hebrews 12, he's, he's expounding upon how Christ is our all-sufficient sacrifice. And in light of the fact that Christ is our all-sufficient fa- sacrifice, the author of Hebrews says this. He says, Let us therefore be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. 
And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming what? Fire. One simple yet profound application of viewing God and, and seeing him as holy and distinct from us is to be grateful. To be grateful that we're part of the kingdom of Christ. But also to worship God with reverence and awe means you don't check out at church and scroll your phone and check Twitter and look at the football scores or the Ryder Cup scores. It means to, to worship God with reverence and awe, it means you engage your mind and heart when we sing, when we read scripture, when we hear scripture preached. I, I don't see how you can read this verse to worship God with reverence and awe and not come to the conclusion that the public gathering of God's people should be a priority in our lives. Faith, fellowship with God requires a sacrifice and we praise the Lord that he's provided that sacrifice in Jesus Christ, amen? Our God is dominant and dangerous. Let us be a church who reverently worships the Lord. Because of Christ, please hear me, we need not be terrified of the Lord. But you know what? Being a little scared wouldn't hurt. Let's pray.